Hey everybody, my name is Kyle. Welcome to Uplift and to the conversation and to uh, Anchor Point. We're beginning a new teaching series called The Cast of Christmas. The Cast of Christmas. We're going to be taking a fresh look at some of the key players of the Christmas story and making some observations all through uh, the next three weeks. I'm glad you're here. And I really hope that this series enhances your Christmas season and gives you a fresh hope in your walk with Jesus. We're going to start, though, somewhere else in Scripture tonight. We're going to start in Psalm 66. Psalm 66. Psalm 66 commands a specific response to God in all things, and I include in all things the Christmas season. The Christmas season. So I want to begin this message and this series with this affirmation. It's in Psalm 66. We're going to begin in verse 3. And I'm going to ask you to read out loud with me. It's just about three verses. Here we go. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds. Let's start in verse five again. I want to hear you. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. We're coached in Psalm 66 to say three things to God. Three things. Real quick. The first, we're coached to say to God, how awesome are your deeds? That's what we say to God. And look, God is aware of his own awesomeness. You don't have to remind him of that. He doesn't require our validation. But what we do when we say that is we bring to him an agreement. God's deeds are magnificent. And we're coached to say that. The second thing we're coached to say to God is this, that your power is so great that your enemies cringe before you. Now, that doesn't always have to be a visceral agreement. Evil is a virus. It infects our world. It turns good people bad. But rest assured that this penitent pose might not happen on this side of glory, but we have a firm belief that in the end, all of creation will bow in submission. Every good person and every evil person will eventually recognize that God is supreme. Even your enemies cringe. And the third thing we're coached to say to God is this, All the earth worships you and sings praise to your name. Creation is a mirror of God's goodness, and it declares to God a constant praise. That's what it does. We're coached to say these things to God. But we also get one more little bit of coaching here in Psalm 66, and it's this. It's not anything that we're supposed to say to God. It's what we're supposed to say to other people. We're to invite God others to share in this goodness. This is what the psalmist writes, come and see to other people. Come and see what God has done and how awesome are his works for humanity. Now look, God's works are obvious, but they're not always recognizable. We're we're partners. We're partners with God in this evangelism. We bring others to God and all we do is we invite them to gaze. That's what we do to see, to to see God's works. His works are enough to testify to his goodness. He doesn't need your words 
What he's done is enough. Now, I'm starting this way because I wish this for you in this Christmas season. I wish for you a new look at the story of God's awesome works on your behalf. That's what I want. And so I really hope that this brief series testifies to this goodness and that you can say to God anew, God, your deeds are awesome. That's what I hope that that happens over the next few weeks. And I hope that because God has worked through various people and various layers of perceived complexity. I'm going to show you this in a minute to pull off the greatest story ever told, the story of God's intrusion into human history as a person. It's like, it's like the parent who plays on the floor with his or her children. He's, he's approached us. It's a willing humility by God, as Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. We're not God's. We're not deity, we're creation, and God assumed our own essence to participate in the emotions that he created, in the pain that he created, in the joy he created, in the love and the loss that he created. This is the awesome deed we are coached to remark to God, and the awesome deed to which we are told to invite others. That's what this is. So what we're going to do is we're going to start this series by talking about Christmas music. Are you tired of it yet? You better not be. I think we owe a little bit of uh, uh, gratitude to good Christmas music for the prevalence of the Christmas story and uh, this awesome deed of Jesus' birth. I want to show you the title of an article published in the New York Times just last week, actually. It's an article called Why You Love or Love to Hate Christmas Music by Derek Bryson Taylor. Now, Derek Taylor interviewed an author and musician and professor. His name is Daniel Levitin. Uh, Daniel Levitin is a professor emeritus of psychology and neuroscience at McGill University, Montreal, who confirms with research what you and I already know to be true. We use music to soothe us. That's what we do. And Professor Levitin has a little bit of credibility here. He participated in a 2013 study that concluded that music actually boosts our immune systems and it reduces stress. So when you add nostalgic music to that, the effects are immediate. Christmas music, whether we like it or not, gives us a physical reaction. It does. It makes us feel good, especially if Christmases past have been good. But, you know, it can also make you feel bad if we've had some bad memories of Christmases past. But for us, for believers, I think we have a, an extra connection to Christmas music. I don't know if you knew this, but stories of the birth of Jesus, Christmas carols, were actually sung in church settings, communal settings, as early as the third century. And that music crossed all social positions. In the dark months of winter, people responded to the stories of Jesus' birth through music, with celebration and generosity. 
You know, the world at large hears the gospel story once a year through this music, whether it even wants to or not, all the way through the music. And here's what they hear. Let's break this down. I'm going to kind of give you a rundown of what I think people hear about the story of Jesus through Christmas music. There's a girl. Her name was Mary. She had a fiancé whose name was Joseph, and together they traveled to Bethlehem, where Mary, who was a virgin, gave birth to a miracle child, the Son of God, named Jesus. And Jesus slept in a manger, a feeding trough. After he was born, he was surrounded by animals, and according to the song, the cattle were lowing. All this to our, according to our songs. And Mary, Mary was aware of her pregnancy. She knew about it because of an angelic visitation. Shepherds and angels celebrated Jesus' birth, as did wise men from the east who knew of Jesus' birth because of a star. I think I got all that right. I don't think I left out any parts of that story from all of our music. Again, you think about that. That's pretty good. We owe a massive debt of gratitude for this. It's not the full gospel story, but it is the beginning of it, and I think it's really good that at least for once a year, people hear the name Jesus. They hear it. They do. But I think we can do more to recognize this awesome deed of God. So what we're going to do over the next three weeks is we're going to look at the key players of this story. And for this particular message, we're going to look at three key players of the Christmas story not named Mary or Joseph or Jesus. Instead, I got three more for you. And the first one and the second one and the third one is Matthew and Luke, and Paul. In fact, if you're taking notes, those are the three blanks. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that now. It's all kinds of stuff for you to write down. I don't want there to be any surprises. Matthew, Luke, and Paul. Now, stories have main characters, but they also have some background characters. And, you know, as they say, there's no such thing as small parts, only small actors. Matthew and Luke and Paul, I think, are overlooked in the Christmas story. They're not necessarily part of our Christmas music, but they have significant parts, and they are significant actors in this story. Now, i got to make a disclaimer, though. We're not going to overly analyze these characters. We're not going to overly analyze their contribution. You know, we're tempted to do that. We love to understand the dates when things happen. We love to dissect and discern and maybe even over-explain what we can see as differences in the stories they tell. We love to study the astronomical signs to figure out what the star of Bethlehem is. Oh, that's good. That's all good. We're not going to do that here. But I do think that we can learn something new from these three men, which will let us tell God of his awesome deeds and give something for others to see. So for the first two, for Matthew and Luke, I'm just going to give you some facts. I'm going to show you some things about these guys that are incredibly interesting. Matthew's number one. Let's talk about who Matthew's audience was, all right? Now, Matthew wrote his gospel in the second half of the first century, and he wrote it to Jewish Christians, Jewish believers. That was his audience. Matthew understood something most authors understand this, that the Jewish people were living in a diminishing importance of their people because of the broader and infinitely more powerful Roman Empire. They're being overshadowed. 
this grand story they had wasn't being told anymore. So there was this undercurrent of a question in the Jewish people that Matthew wanted to answer, and the question was this, how does their Jewish heritage continue if Israel diminishes in geopolitical importance? In other words, are they still going to be important? Are people really going to care about who they are? Well, Matthew answers that question with his gospel, And he knows something. He knows that Israel's heritage and importance will continue through Jesus. That's the point of his gospel. And we know this to be true because Matthew begins his gospel with this statement. This is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Look at those couple of players David and Abraham, that's who he's the son of. Let's talk about something else. Matthew uses two specific Greek words as the first two words of his gospel. I want to show you. It's the book of genealogy, but to the left on the slide are the Greek words. Biblos, Genesios. I think that's how it's pronounced. We're not really sure how Koine Greek was pronounced, but that's pretty close. Or, literally, if you look at those Greek words, if you translate them literally into English, this is what it is. It's the book of Genesis. So when Jewish believers heard this for the first time and read it, they opened to what was called the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis. Pretty fascinating. Now you can see Matthew's intent, even in the first two words of his gospel. This, he says, is the beginning. This is the beginning. V, T-H-E, all capital letters, V. He's not trying to supplant the Hebrew book of Genesis, but he's saying, if you want to know where all this starts, it starts right here with Jesus. And what a claim. That just gives me goosebumps. That's what he says to the world. This is where it begins. Let me tell you about this this word, Genesis. Now, this phrase, this word and this phrase is actually found twice in the Greek translation of the Old Testament book we call Genesis. And all of the copies that were read by the authors of the New Testament, they read the Greek New Testament. That's what they read. That's what was floating around. I'm going to show you where these were. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, And in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, in both of those, this word or this phrase is used to provide the origin of the heavens and the earth and the descendants of Adam. In fact, this is where the Greek translators got the name for the book, the Hebrew name of this book. They called it Genesis. Now, what's crazy about this is that this word, Genesis is found only in these two places in the entire Old Testament, not found anywhere else. So when Matthew starts writing this book, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's saying in all of Scripture, this is the beginning right here because it's not used anywhere else. Matthew uses this word to introduce the beginning of Israel's story with Jesus. And he starts with a genealogy, And he doesn't start his genealogy with Adam, but you saw this. 
He begins it with Abraham, the patriarch of Israel. Jesus, he writes, throughout his gospel, is the natural successor to Abraham. He continues. Jesus continues what Abraham began. And Matthew continues this theme in the story of Jesus' birth. What he does, if you read the first opening, the, the, the opening chapters of his gospel, is that he prioritizes Old Testament references in the first few chapters. In fact, Matthew makes it pretty clear that both Joseph and Mary are guided by Old Testament texts. So what you can kind of tell when you read it is that Matthew takes a very academic, studious approach to his telling. It's very successful. It's incredibly successful. But Luke, the second player in our cast, he does something a little different. So while Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth through this very academic lens, Luke does something different. He tells the story of Jesus' birth through the lens of celebration. Very different. Now, a little bit about Luke. As far as we know, he's not a Jewish person. He came to belief in Jesus probably because of the apostle Paul. So as a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, he was living in the real-time effects of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And so what he does is he, he tells the story from that perspective. He included in his story the words of a certain prophet named Simeon who met the baby Jesus and proclaimed in Luke chapter 2, verse 32, that Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles. That's what he puts in his, Matthew didn't put that. Luke put it. Luke also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, the Acts of the Apostles, Luke, one guy, wrote 24% of the New Testament. He is eager to tell the story of how all this happened. And this is how he starts it. The evolution of this light to the Gentiles. In fact, he has a genealogy of Jesus. But his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. To before there was a Jewish nation. To begin this explosion of the gospel to the whole world. And he also brings all kinds of people into his story because this is a party to him. This is a party. Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist, they're part of this story. He brings in a couple of prophets, Simeon and Anna. You've got shepherds, you've got angels. He even brings in the emperor of the Roman Empire. But to me, the most memorable thing about Luke's narrative is this, is that he includes music in his story. Songs of joy and celebration. We know them by the Latin names. I want to show you the Magnificat. It's sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Benedictus was sung by Zachariah. It's all there, by the way. The father of John the Baptist and the Nunc Dimittis, sung by the prophet Simeon. Music is a part of Luke's telling of the story of Jesus' birth. Others join in this celebration. Angels sing to an audience of shepherds who go to visit the baby Jesus because of the songs of the angels. In fact, in fact, Matthew, let's kind of go back to Matthew for a second, includes in his narrative a threat on Jesus' life. Herod wants to kill baby Jesus. It's in there. Luke, we're just going to conveniently skip over. There is no threat to Jesus' life. He conveniently leaves out that detail. Now, if not for Matthew and Luke, we would know very little about Jesus' birth. In fact, the other two Gospels, Mark and John, 
don't record anything about Jesus' birth. We know everything about the birth of Jesus because of those two men. They are key players in the cast of Christmas, and they exalt the beginning of the story of when God became a human. Let's talk about the third member of this Christmas cast, and it's Paul. It's Paul. And Paul is, is where we find a perspective not only on Christmas, but on the Christmas before Christmas. And we get this from his writing in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. We're going to read every verse. It's going to be on the screen. Follow along. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What an eloquent piece of writing in the New Testament. Wow. Written by Paul and Timothy. Timothy is also an author of Colossians. And to me, this is an unmatched piece of Scripture in the New Testament. It's quite phenomenal to me. I've memorized it. I quote it to myself all the time. New Testament commentator James Dunn in his commentary on Colossians and Philemon says this about this passage and its perspective on Jesus. Dunn writes this, it shows, this passage shows the intellectual vitality of the early Christian communities and of their willingness to use categories fundamental to wider philosophical thought in their attempts to explicate the significance of Christ and to communicate it to a wider audience. Remember what the psalmist wrote? Come and see. He continues, this passage represents front-rank thinkers among the first Christians eager to engage with their contemporaries, look at this, in the attempt to explain reality. That's what this passage does. He's right with intellectual vitality and not an emotional response. This passage confronts and answers how God is at work in the world. It's a question we have. How is God at work in the world? Well, this passage is Paul's way of saying that, that Jesus is how God works in the world. And Paul does this so by beginning this passage with a statement about Jesus' birth. Let's read it again. One verse from verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now, what Paul does here is fascinating to me. He talks about Jesus as a human using two very important words. And the first of these words is this. It's image. Image. God is invisible. You can't see him, except through Jesus. 
Jesus' advent, his birth, his humanity was designed to make God visible because he becomes, as Paul writes, the image of God. You know what that phrase is. You know where that phrase comes from. He's designed to become like me and you. That's from Genesis chapter 1 where God creates us in his image. Paul is saying he's becoming human just like us. Jesus becomes the image of God at his birth. And the second word that Paul uses here is the word firstborn. Firstborn. Now, this reference to Jesus, though, it's not the story of Mary's virgin conception and her virgin birth of Jesus. What it is, is that it's a story about Jesus' supremacy. In fact, the very next verse indicates that Jesus, the human, though born as a human, pre-existed before every other created thing. In fact, as Paul and Timothy wrote, all things were created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus. And what Paul does here is that he speaks of the Christmas before the Christmas. It's a Christmas of preeminence and supremacy. Because God, inserting himself into creation, this is not the biggest part of the story. It's valuable, absolutely valuable. But the greater claim of Jesus that Paul is saying is that he's over everything. He's over everything. Jesus' story did not start in Bethlehem. Let me say that again. Jesus' story did not start in Bethlehem. But this Christmas before the Christmas it has a key element here. You're, you're going you're gonna to see this. It has a key inclusion, and it's this. It's you. It's you, because in this Christmas before the Christmas, God was doing things. He was busy. Jesus was busy before he was born. He was at work on your behalf before he created the world. It was a work that became real the moment he was born as a human. I want to show you this. This is from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You know this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were supposed to be alive. That was planned before God ever said, let there be light. Incredible amount of purpose for your life. Not only were you supposed to be alive, regardless of how you got here, regardless of your lineage and your descendants and your parents, you're supposed to be alive. But there are also things God has already prepared for you to do before he said, let there be light. Can you imagine? This is the Christmas before the... You're the gift of the Christmas before the Christmas. What an amazing story to tell. And all of this, this Christmas story, it was on purpose. It was on your purpose. And what I want to encourage you to do is walk in it. Walk in it. Celebrate Christmas well this season. Tell the God, how awesome are your deeds, Lord and invite others to come see it.